You are listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Good evening. A couple months ago, someone close to me was going through a difficult time. She still is. Uh, It's gotten a little better since then, though. She was going through a divorce, and uh, they have a kid, so there's all those problems there. And I was talking to her about Jesus. She doesn't know Jesus, and I was telling her about how he you know, provides forgiveness, uh, about his sacrificial death, and how he connects us with God. And her response to that was, she said, how can I accept God's forgiveness when I can't forgive myself? And... She doesn't know Jesus, but I think even as Christians, we can get in those seasons of life or those mindsets or those moods where we don't fully trust in God's forgiveness and we don't fully trust in His promises and uh, we don't have confidence in what God has gifted us with and trusted us. Um, So do you ever condemn yourself like that to say that I'm not, God couldn't forgive me, my sin's too great? Do you feel unworthy to be accepted by the God of the universe. I mean, we are, but do you feel it in your day-to-day life? Do you wonder if God even hears your prayers? Uh, do you doubt if you're even saved? And so once we realize how sinful we are, it's very easy to fall into condemnation. Because even you know, the person I was talking about earlier, she doesn't know Jesus, but says she couldn't trust in God's forgiveness when she can forgive herself. And then what I found in my life when I became a Christian uh, and I think this is very common, that's when we start to realize, oh, I'm sinful, I'm a sinner, because that's the first step in being a Christian, is admitting that you're a sinner. And you realize, and different things will come to your mind about the things you've done, and the things you shouldn't have done, and you start to condemn yourself, and to say, you're not worthy of this, you're not good enough, and God doesn't listen to me, God doesn't care about me. And, you know, in a way, you're right, you're not worthy, like I said, none of us are worthy to be connected with God on our own doing. That's all through Jesus. But uh, knowing that we have confidence before God through Christ can help us with our feelings of condemnation. We're always told when this idea of condemnation comes up a lot. It's in Romans 8. You know, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And we're usually told as Christians, these are attacks of the enemy, getting you to doubt what God has promised you, to doubt your salvation. Um, And that's true. But a lot of times we neglect the answer to that. We just told this is an attack of the enemy. What's the answer to this lack of confidence we can have before God because of how sinful we are? Um, condemnation can be cured with confidence. Now, I'm an English teacher. That's called alliteration. CCC. Condemnation can be cured with confidence. Okay, so when we're feeling condemned like that, that we're not worthy or God doesn't listen to us, or when God, if we think God doesn't forgive us, confidence in what he said can cure that condemnation. Uh, like this just happened to me yesterday. Uh, I was out shopping with my wife, Adrian, and she got me an iPad for Christmas. And 
I, sometimes I struggle with this confidence in myself, like, uh, you know, I have a low self-confidence or whatever, and I just got all whiny about it, like, no, I don't deserve this iPad, and oh, there's too much money to spend on myself. And it's the same kind of thing. You, you, you lack that confidence, and then that can lead to whininess, griping, complaining, or even condemnation. Okay, but again, it's because of the work of Jesus that we can have confidence before God. Yeah, on our own, we can have no confidence. All we're assured of is the wrath of God, condemnation. But through Jesus, we can have confidence before God, and we should as Christians when we trust in the work of Jesus. And so what we're going to read tonight in 1 John, to end the letter of 1 John, is about confidence before God through Christ. And uh, he gives a few assurances here as he ends the letter about uh, where you can have confidence before God. And so the uh, first thing he says is we have confidence in eternity because of the work of Jesus. So in chapter 5 of 1 John, verse uh, 13, he kind of gives his summarizing statement of why he wrote this letter. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So he puts out there his purposes to writing the letter, to this letter, and he has two of them. First, to know that you have eternal life. Yeah, confidently know it, trust it in your salvation. And through this whole letter, if you know, if you read on your own or been here on Sunday nights to hear these sermons, John paints a very clear picture of who is a Christian and who is not a Christian. Hey, the, there's a, a very dividing line of what a truly regenerated. Uh, Holy Spirit indwelt Christian is versus someone who just says they believe in Jesus but don't live it. He's drawn this very clear line. That's why, you know, when we study First John, it says what it means to be a Christian. And that's why this is what this book is all about. What it means exactly to be a Christian versus just saying it. Um, so we're saved as Christians, you know, Christianity 101, through the gospel message, through the fact that God the Son entered into human history to be the perfect sacrifice to pay for the sins of humanity. And we're saved by that. By grace alone, we're saved. It's nothing that we've done to save us. That's all Jesus. But, and a lot of times people stop right there. But there's this other part of it. That's our salvation. Sanctification is another issue. This is walking with Jesus, increasing in godliness in our lives. And our uh, faith in Jesus doesn't stop at saying, I believe in you. Now I'm set. It's a whole life. It's not a decision. It's a lifestyle. And John here, it's not that we're saved by these things. These are indicators that we are saved. It's like a test. So that's how we're saved. It's all Jesus. But through this letter, John has been saying, if you are saved, if the Holy Spirit is living inside you, because that's what happens when you give your faith to Jesus and repent from your sins, he sends the Holy Spirit to live inside you, certain things will and should happen if that's really happened. And if they have not, then, you know, the question, have I fully repented of my sins? Do I trust in Jesus? Is there, you know, some other reasons for that? But here's some of the things. So this is almost like the chapter review at the end of the book. Uh, this is, I think, the 11th sermon in First John. So we're going to go through a thorough recap of all that. No, we're not. Not thorough. Just briefly. Uh, to point out, okay, he's, again, he's drawing this very clear line of who has secure in their salvation and who should not be secure in our, their salvation. So we talked way back in the beginning about knowing Jesus. You know, Christians know Jesus. They don't know about Him. They know Him. They see Him. They hear Him. Um, and they, yeah, they know Him. 
Non-Christians, a clear line, do not. They know about him. They don't have a relationship with him. They just know about him. They know facts and so forth like that. Okay, uh, Christians repent of their sins. It says early in the book, in uh, chapter 1, that if we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So Christians see their sinfulness and repent of it. Non-Christians ignore it. If, so when you are sinning and you ignore it, that might be an indicator of a lack of obedience or uh, confidence in salvation. Christians obey Jesus. We talked about that. Um, they, Jesus gives commands, and out of love for him, not to gain his love, but because he already does, we are to obey those commands that Jesus gives us, and we do what he says and walk as he walked. Uh, Christians, so if you're not obeying Jesus, that might be an indicator of not true salvation. Um, Christians gain new enemies. Hey, there's new enemies that happen when you're a Christian, because before you're a Christian, you're kind of on the enemy's side. A lot of times they leave, your, you, leave you alone. So if your life is not probably even getting harder when you become a Christian, there may be some problems there. John lays that out clearly. Christians are God's children. They have that relationship with God, that we are His children, and He loves us no matter what, because that's how we love our own children. The biggest one probably, uh, for sure really in this letter, the biggest indicator of your salvation is loving other Christians, putting other people's needs ahead of your own, and loving the body of Christ, and showing God's love that way. If you're not loving fellow Christians, then maybe you're not secure in your salvation. Uh, Christians follow the spirit of truth, yeah, that points to Jesus being God, not the spirit of error that points to yourself as God, pretty much, all those different philosophies and worldviews. And Christians believe Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who came to pay for the penalty of our sins, to die for our salvation, and non-Christians don't believe that. So there's, there's more than this. If you read the whole letter, there's a very clear picture. These are things that Christians do. These are things that Christians, non-Christians do. And again, we, we need to, I need to emphasize this is not... How you gain your salvation, it's indicators that you have your salvation, that you can have confidence in it. And so hopefully after reading this letter on your own or coming to uh, listen to these sermons, hopefully you start to see more where you lie. You get a picture of yourself spiritually. Because maybe you doubted your salvation, but now you're saying, hey, I'm doing a lot of those things John says Christians do. Now I can have confidence. Or maybe you are sure of your salvation, and then you're reading this and getting convicted and saying, I'm not doing a lot of the things John says Christians do. It's to be more clear on where you stand and your security and your confidence and your salvation. The worst place to be, as we've talked about this before, is a nominal Christian. Someone who says they're a Christian, but doesn't live it. Because that's a lose-lose situation. I mean, it's win-win for them, but it's lose-lose because you think think you're saved, but you're not. It's... uh, that's the place where we don't want to be. So I'd rather you be sure you're not a Christian than to think you are and not actually be one. So these very clear indicators. So that's his first purpose in writing this letter so that you may know that you have eternal life, having that confidence. Secondly, he says, he writes this letter so that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God, to continue believing, to strengthen your faith, and to know I am a Christian so I can continue in this. Because when you have the confidence and what God says, you have the boldness to continue in it. A couple of years ago, I was a football coach in Jackpot, only for one full season. Um, so we play eight-man football. It's a tiny school. And people always ask how that works. Well, you lose two linemen, if you're curious about eight-man football. Uh, 
but I was the football coach for you. Not, I don't, I'm not good at football. I played a couple years. I don't know much about football, but they needed a coach, and it's a small school. And, hey, I'll help with the kids and do that. So I was a football coach for a year. We didn't do all that bad. We won a couple games, which is good for Jackpot. They don't win a lot of football games. And as a matter of fact, there is no more football team in Jackpot. That's why I was only coached one year, their last season as uh, having a football team. And I also like to say I'm undefeated at home in my football coaching career because we played one game at home and we won it. So, yeah, that's going in the Hall of Fame at Jackpot Combined School. Uh, but I was a football coach for one season. And the next season, the next year came around. We were always kind of worried at the end of the season if this was going to be the last season of Jackpot football because the school's getting smaller. And even though it's only eight man, I mean, you still need like at least 12 people to play. Uh, so we were worried that the next year there wouldn't be a team. So we decided to just try it and go through the beginning practices and all that. And we ended up not having a team. There was, we couldn't get enough guys to play an eight-man football team. But the principal and the, the athletic director gave me all these books about how to coach football so I could learn to be a better football coach. And, you know, I wasn't sure there'd be a team. So did I read those books? Nah, I didn't read it. And plus, I'm not, I don't really, you know football, whatever. Okay, but I didn't read those books because I wasn't sure there wasn't going to be a team. I wasn't motivated to be a better football coach when I wasn't sure that there's even going to be a team to coach. So I didn't read those books and now I'm glad because I didn't waste my time reading it. And what I'm saying, when I was, didn't have confidence in the continuation of the football team, I didn't invest anything into it. And we had a couple weeks of practice and that was it. And the season was over. We had to forfeit the season. Okay, but Without having the confidence that this was going to continue, there is no reason why I thought I should invest into it uh, and to learn how to be a better coach and learn more real football, blah, 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 all those things. And same with Christianity and having confidence in your salvation. If you don't have that confidence in your salvation, you maybe you probably don't have enough motivation to invest in it. Yeah, but when you're sure of your salvation, when you're confident in what Jesus has promised you, when you trust in the work that he's done, and you're fully confident that what you do here is going to continue into eternity and being rewarded by God the Father, that gives you motivation right now to invest into it, hey, to walk more closely with Jesus, and to uh, follow His commands more clearly, to be more obedient to Him. Because that confidence, we know what's going to happen, God has told us. And a lack of trust will cause a lack of investment. Hey, so... How do you live your Christian life? Do you live it with confidence, knowing that what you do now is going to resound in eternity, putting up your treasures in heaven? Or do you live it kind of not sure, not confident, not fully trusting in Jesus? And then you kind of do like I did yesterday with my wife, is get all whiny about it and needy, and like I need to be reassured and all that. And there's nothing wrong with going through those times, but we should have confidence in what Jesus has done and then invest in that because we know it's going to continue forever. Uh, if I was going to be taking over the football program for years and years and years, I would probably be working a lot harder on being a better coach. And it's not. It's done. Yeah, so I'm not going to be a football coach. But we're going to be Christians, and we're going to continue all through eternity. So invest in it. And that's our confidence in our salvation. We also have confidence in prayer. And a lot of times people say, like, what's the use of praying? I mean, God decides everything, or He doesn't listen to me. You know, I'm too sinful. I'm not worthy to come before Him. Again, you're not, but that's the gospel, because you're not worthy. He allows you to anyway, out of love. Oh, a lot of times we lack confidence in prayer in our life with Jesus. 
Okay, so in uh, verses 14 through 17, John gives us the confidence we have in prayer. Okay, he says, uh, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask. And he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. He's talking about the confidence we have in prayer because of what Jesus has done. Because he's our mediator standing between us and the Father, the only mediator, the only person who can take our requests and present them to the Father. So you don't need a pastor to do that or a priest or whatever. You present your request to God and Jesus stands before him for that for you. Uh, and prayer can, can be very difficult. I had a hard time praying when I became a Christian for a long time. I remember when I first became a Christian about three years ago, uh, Adrian has always been a lot better at praying. And we would pray at the end of the day and you know, she would say you know, the things that happen in praying. And I never would. I mean, I would participate. I would you know, sit there along with her. But it took me a long time before I actually did it. And it's still, it's, you know, I would much rather just sit down and read the Bible. But those two things, they work together. So to me, I mean, I understand this lack of confidence in prayer because it's hard for me. Some people are more gifted in it than others. But something that I've worked on, and here's two principles he gives about prayer that can help you to have confidence in your prayer. First he says, to pray according to his will. In verse 14 and 15, it says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So here's the big help with confidence in prayer. It says, according to his will. And it says, God hears and answers all prayers when prayed according to his will. And, you know, I've heard it said a lot as Christians, and it's true, it's very helpful that God and hears and answers every prayer. He answers yes, no, or later. And a lot of times we think because God didn't say yes, he's not answering the prayer. But because we've talked about God as a father and we are children, no good parent says yes to their kids every single time. That's not a good parent. And God is a perfect father. Sometimes he says no, sometimes he says wait. But he hears and answers every prayer because that's a promise we have in the Bible. We can have confidence in that because God wrote it through the Holy Spirit. Uh, but it's according to his will. It's kind of the uh, limitation he puts on it. And he says that if we ask anything according to his will. So that's very important. Now prayer is not trying to get God to change his mind. A lot of times that's what people think. It's we need to change God's mind or persuade him to do something or manipulate him by praying or say these magic words so God has to do it. That's not what prayer is. Uh, Robert Logg said this quote. I don't know who this is, but I like this quote. He says, Prayer is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done on earth. And we don't pray so God does what we ask Him. We pray so that we do what He asks us. It's not some magic formula. It's not some manipulation. And this helped me with my prayer to realize I'm not praying to get God to do what I want because then I'm the God and I'm trying to boss Him around and think that my prayers can force Him to do what I ask. Prayer is to get me in line with Him. It's the two-way communication. The Bible is how He talks to us. We talk to Him through prayer. And through prayer, when we pray what He wants according to His will, then we start to do the things He asks and to have more confidence in it. 
Now, what was really helpful for me, if you struggle with prayer, what to pray about, is uh, the breakdown of the Lord's Prayer. You know, when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, so this is a common problem, not having confidence in prayer, he gave them the Lord's Prayer, and this is how you should pray. And what's helpful is that this is a model prayer. It's not like you're supposed to just repeat it word for word. So these are the types of things you can pray about. Um, it says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So you can pray to him, just giving him glory and thanks and saying how awesome he is. Yeah, that's part of prayer. Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we pray that his will is done here like it is in heaven. We pray for Jesus' return, uh, praying that he would work through us to do his will. Uh, give us today our daily bread. So this is where we ask him the things that we're worried about, we're struggling with. And even... Like one thing that convicts me is I don't have to ask for our daily bread. We already have it. Like literally the food and to thank him for all these things he's given us. Uh, forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. So repenting of your sin, confessing your sin to God, and not just sin in general, but specific things you can recall that you've done that were contrary to his will and asking for forgiveness and knowing that he'll give it to you and then for the Holy Spirit to change, uh, to change you. And lead us not into temptation. So to ask God for help when you're tempted to turn away from that and turn to Him instead. Because temptation is not a sin. Temptation gives birth to sin, it says in the book of James, I think. So when we're tempted, we have the choice to turn to God or to turn to sin. So we pray for the Holy Spirit to give us the strength to turn to Him instead. Uh, and deliver us from evil. So prayer for protection over you know, evil spirits or demonic influence in our lives and so forth. And then in yours uh, is the kingdom, power, and glory forever and ever. So just more praising of God. And seeing all those different things to pray about helped me to learn how to pray more confidently. And it's not just saying, like, here's your wish list, and I'm going to say it to God. But it's all those different things. Um, now, a lot of times people struggle with this God's will part. And it almost becomes like a very constricting thing. Like if you're not following God's will you're on the wrong path. And there's only one God's will, and you might. I mean, sometimes this really hangs people up. Now think of God's will as, it's not a parking space, it's a parking lot. As long as you're within the boundaries of the things he said, you're doing God's will. It's not one tiny specific thing, you have to be sure, okay, am I doing this exact specific thing, or I'm out of God's will? No, God's will is just the boundaries, it's the whole parking lot. If you're in the parking lot, you're doing God's will. And so I like to think, when I'm not sure what's God's will, if I should do something, I ask this, why would it not be God's will? You know, why would it not be God's will that I, you know, give this to that person? Or why would it not be God's will to help out this person? I mean, we, God's will is very, there's a lot of freedom there. We don't need to get hung up on, there's only one little tiny place we can be. God's will is very big. So we need to pray according to His will. Now secondly, He says to have confidence in prayer, to be focused on others. It says in chapter 16 and 17, it's kind of confusing. John says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. Well, he's talking about prayer in the context here. And a big part of prayer is praying for other people, not just praying for ourselves. We should be focused on others, and others includes God. If all we're doing is praying about the things we want, the things we want God to give us, then that might explain some of the lack of confidence that you might have in prayer. Um, but it also says 
that we are to intercede for our brothers and sisters when we know that they're sinning. And that takes a lot of confidence too. But it says that if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask. And so we have to not be like looking to point out people's sins, but if you see someone engaging in sin, to pray for that first. And remember to take the plank out of your own eye, like Jesus says, before you approach that person. But to be praying for other people that they would even have repentance um, and be thinking about the needs of other people. Now there's the hard part here, he says, about sin leading to death. Uh, And I did a lot of research to try to figure out this idea, and everyone had a different answer. So I don't know. I don't know what I can tell you about this. Because out of context... I would take it as there's some sins that maybe aren't as bad as others. There's some sins. He's, when he talks about death, he's talking about spiritual death. Is usually what John is meaning by that. So out of context, it looks like he's saying there's some sins that don't lead to death spiritually. And, you know, that can lead us down lots of wormholes like the mortal and venial sins uh, that Catholics have. But in context, he's talking about prayer. And he's talking about praying for other Christians. And like I said, everyone has a different interpretation of this. My best guess would be that if you can't pray for anyone in good conscience, then it's time to turn them over to God's justice. Um, like we read about in the book of Romans, that if you're praying for someone for their repentance, for their sins, and it's not leading anywhere, you don't even feel right about it because their sins are so great, then maybe it's time to just say, God, you know, I'll turn them over to your justice. But again, there's a whole bunch of interpretations of that. I would just recommend not getting hung up on what's a sin leading to death, what's not. But the idea here is to pray for other people and to intercede for them, to help them, and that sort of thing. And when I was in uh, high school, I remember asking my dad for a new computer because uh, I think we had like Windows 3.1 computer. and remember Windows 3.1, uh, early 90s. And then we might have got another, I don't remember the exact timeline, but I know I wanted to play EverQuest because if you were a nerd in the late 90s, you wanted to play EverQuest. Dustin knows what I'm talking about. It's like World of Warcraft, but before that. Uh, so I needed a new compla- computer to play EverQuest. So I asked my dad for a new computer. And he said, okay, I'll get you a new computer, but you have to, you know, the dad deal. You have to mow the lawn. You have to take out the garbage. You know, you have to do these things. Uh, so he got me the computer, but he said I had to do those things. Now, I didn't do those things. I didn't mow the yard. I didn't take out the garbage. I was very disobedient. And he said to me, you know, he was, I think, frustrated one day about it. Uh, it was in high school. That's a long time ago. Uh, and I don't remember exactly what he said. But he was frustrated that he bought, you know, a computer for me and these things, but I don't even do the little bit like mowing the yard or taking out the garbage. And I think, you know, this is, I think, a pretty common way to go about it when we remember when we were kids asking our parents for things. And like a lot of things, I think this gives us a, influences how we see God and how we see prayer. See, I asked my dad for the computer and then he said, you do this and that. Now, if I would have, what if I would have said to my dad, hey, what can I do to help you? He'd probably be a lot easier to just give me the computer without asking. And I said, hey, what can I do around here to help out around the house? Can I mow the yard? Can I you know, do all those other things? Then it's a lot easier for him to just hand the computer without even asking. And we a lot of times approach God. God, give, you know, I want this. Give me this. Give me that. But we don't ask him, what can we do to further his kingdom? What does he want us to do to be obedient to him? And when we're asking for the things we want, that's a lot of times what we do with it. I know, even myself, I've asked for things for God to give me, and He does, and it doesn't really change my obedience. I, you know, it's just like when I asked my dad, I didn't really, I, yeah, maybe said thanks God, but it didn't, I wasn't as obedient as I should have been, I wasn't as thankful as I should have been, 
But when we're praying to God and asking for Him what He wants us to do, then a lot of the times He just takes care of the things that we would have asked for otherwise. And that's how we can have confidence in prayer. Because that's according to His will. Hey God, what do you want me to do? How can I serve you better? How can I love others more? And how can I turn away from my sins better? And those other things we may ask for, He'll provide them because we're doing the things He wants. And then it's uh, doing it according to His will. And so when you pray, do you pray primarily for yourself, for the things you want, or do you pray for other people and for the things God wants of you to do to serve Him? Um, when brothers and sisters you see sinning uh, and need your prayers, do you pray for them or maybe even rebuke them? That's part of the accountability as Christians. I mean, we're not trying to point out people's sins, but if you clearly see it and you're not praying for them, not rebuking them, then, and you know, you have to make sure they want it. You can't just go around, hey, I heard you're sinning. No, I mean, you'll gain that relationships with people as you uh, start to mature in Christ and the, you know, the body and all that. But we are, it says here, to pray for other believers when they're sinning, pray for other people. But again, it's about God's will being done, not your will being done, and manipulating God to do it. Hey, you're asking Him, what do you want me to do? And then a lot of the other things will take care of themselves. And then we can gain much more confidence in our prayer. Uh, thirdly, John says we can have confidence in holiness because of the work of Jesus. We have confidence in eternity, confidence in prayer, now confidence in holiness. He's reassuring his readers. And a holiness means to be distinct or separate. Now, when we're Christians, we're supposed to be a separate people, distinct, different from everybody else, because we have the love of Jesus living in us. And he points out these three things. First, he says in verse 18 that we will sin less. He says, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. You know, this can be very confusing at first because I think just the translation here, we ran into this earlier in the letter. But at the beginning he says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. Now he says, whoever is born of God does not sin. So that seems to be contradictory. But in the Greek, it's the idea that keep continuing in sin, to practice sin. It's an ongoing action. So whoever is born of God does not sin, or does not continue in sin, does not keep on sinning, does not, when you know you're sinning, does not continue doing it. Because that's part of being born again. So when we're born of God, and remember there's no such thing as Christians and then born again Christians. All Christians are born again Christians. Because we're born physically, but then we need to be born spiritually through the Holy Spirit when we give our sin to Jesus. So we will continue to sin, but part of being a Christian and knowing that you know the confidence in your salvation is you should be sinning less, hopefully. Now what happens is we have our fleshly nature, the Bible calls it. That's our sinful nature, who we are when we're disconnected from God spiritually. And in that nature is the desire to sin. And we all desire to sin. That's why we do it. We don't sin the things we don't like doing. We sin the things we like doing. So we have that desire to sin. And we're born, because of our sinful nature, disconnected from God. But when we're born again, we gain spiritual life. And sin does not live in that spiritual life through the Holy Spirit. But then we have this battle going on, the Bible says, of our flesh and our spirit, that our flesh wants to sin and our spirit does not. And if you're continuing walking in Christ, praying, uh, being assured of your confidences and all that, then your spiritual nature should you know, 
rise and rise, get stronger and stronger, and your fleshly nature go down, and you should see yourself continuing to sin less. And now, we don't want to be prideful about it or anything like that. Uh, and a lot of times, we will sin less, but we'll be more aware of it. So we'll seem like we're sinning more, because we're more in tune with that. But you should be continuing in Christ, uh, sinning less and less. Secondly, in verse 19, when we increase in holiness, he says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we're a separate, different people. The whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, of the devil, doing the things that we all desire to do in our flesh. Okay, living just for yourself, doing the things that give you pleasure, that give you happiness. And as Christians, we're separated from that. We're distinct. We're a holy people, the Bible says. We're separated. We're, we're to be not under the sway of the wicked one, not just doing the things we want to do, but be doing the things God wants us to do. And then in verse 20, it says we're uh, holy in Christ. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And this is a powerful verse. It says only through Jesus can we know God. And God is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father is through Jesus. And it says, uh, He's given us the understanding, the Son of God, because without Jesus, we're separated from Him because of our sin. But Jesus reconnects us. Um, we know Him who is true. We know Him. Not know about Him. We know Him. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And it's all because of the work of Jesus that we have these confidences in our salvation, our eternal life, in our prayer, and then in our holiness, our sanctification, our removing farther and farther from sin. But there's one last exhortation here before the letter's done. And it seems kind of like he just stops writing the letter. It's like, what? He says in verse 21, the last verse in the letter, it says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. And that's it. It's like, what, what, what are you doing there, John? Did we lose your last page? I mean, he's doing a, now I'm an English teacher, and here's, here's the rule you may remember from high school. Don't bring up a new idea in your conclusion. Remember that one? Uh, and John is bringing up a new idea in the conclusion. Good thing he's not an English teacher, because it'd be a lot worse. Those who can do, teach. You see? Burn to myself. But, anyway, he's a, uh, this is how he's choosing to end the letter, to say, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And it, it, it is a very beautiful ending to this. It just seems abrupt. First he says, he's been saying through the letter, little children, a lot of times. It's very sweet, very endearing. You know, John was an old guy when he wrote this. And they, they, he probably lived to be like 80 or 90 years old. And he was the last person who knew Jesus, who was a Jesus' disciple to be alive. All the other disciples uh, were martyred for one way or another. And John, uh, history says they tried to kill him. They tried to boil him alive, but he survived it. And then they exiled him to the island of Patmos. And he lived to be very old. And he's writing this letter and he keeps saying little children. It's very sweet. And he's not... So it's different if he says, keep yourselves from idols. But he's saying little children. It's like he's being encouraging about this. And I like the way the New Living Translation puts this. Uh, because we don't have maybe the best concepts of idolatry because we have so many idols and we don't see it. But it says this. It says, Dear children, keep away from anything that may take God's place in your hearts. And that's what idolatry is. It's anything that takes God's place in your heart. And he's saying this at the end of the, at the, of the letter because all the assurances he's given, all the confidence we should have in Christ, 
if we don't keep ourselves from idols, if we don't keep ourselves from the things that take God's place in our hearts, then none of this does you any good. Because we all have idols, we all have propensity to idolatry, and this is something that's going to take God's place in your heart. And if that idol does become your number one idol over God, then that would indicate you've never repented of your sin, you've never repented of your idolatry. But we all do have this, again, propensity to want to idolize things. Uh, so there's lots of ways. I mean, idolatry could be a whole sermon in itself, but a couple tips on that. So how to identify what are your idols? What are things that might take God's place in your hearts? And this is huge. I mean, you really need to pray about this and investigate in your heart. What are things that are going to take God's place in your heart? Uh, first thing, this helped me to hear this, that idols... Like any false god, they require a sacrifice. Any idol is something that's going to take God's place in your heart, and it's going to require you to sacrifice something to appease that god, so to speak. Uh, so an example, a very common idol is sex. And if sex is your idol, it's going to require you to sacrifice something to please that god. So maybe you have to sacrifice your marriage to please your god or your idol of sex. Maybe you have to sacrifice your health to please that God. You see, so any type of false idol requires you to sacrifice something, and you'll do it when that thing is your, when is your idol, because we want to please that God. A lot of times people make work into an idol, and you sacrifice your family to do your work. You sacrifice your health, your vacation, to do your work. Idols require sacrifice. So what things are causing you to make sacrifices? And there's never enough time in the day to do everything we need, but if something is causing you to sacrifice something that shouldn't be sacrificed, that could be an idol for you. Uh, another thing is, look, at how do you spend your time? If you look at the, your day, how much time is between you and God is one thing. But what occupies most of your time? Like one thing I mentioned earlier is really dumb. I just talked about World of Warcraft, right? And I was a huge World of Warcraft nerd. And this is dumb. Like I like admitting dumb sins, right? Uh, and when, you know, I, I heard this about idolatry, how do you spend your time? I would spend way too much time on that. Like, I don't even want to say because I'll be ashamed and you'll laugh at me. Okay, so way too much time playing World of Warcraft. And it, what it was doing, though, I was sacrificing time with Adrian, with Nora. I quit playing like a year ago. I'm free. Okay, uh, but it, it's even things like that just take up so much of your time that you don't need it. And... Uh, I don't even know I had time to play that game so much because I'm super busy and I don't play it. But anyway, how do you look at your time? I've also heard it said like this. If someone was trying to accuse you of being a Christian and they looked at your day, would they be able to like make that accusation? Would they be able to see you spending time with God and praying, reading the Bible, helping others? It's not just about it's you know doing things as well. Also, how do you spend your money? This is a big one. Look in your bank account. Where does your money go? Yeah, there's bills, there's mortgage, there's all this. But what are, where does your fun money go? Does any money go to God? Hey, to, uh, you know, as part of tithes and offerings and so forth. Hey, where you spend a lot of your money can reveal what your idols are. Uh, so idols require sacrifice. They, a lot of times it's time, money. Some common idols are sex. We talked about that. Money, uh, possessions, work. TV is a, a good one because we all like, face our furniture to look at it so we can bask in its glory of the TV. I mean, even that can be something. Uh, 
But good things as well can be idols, like family can be an idol when it's above God. Um, your spouse can be an idol, and that very much damages a marriage when you make your spouse into your God, so to speak. Uh, your body can be an idol. The biggest idol probably is yourself, because we all do things to please ourselves. We all sacrifice things to please ourselves. And really, all idolatry is about self. But we need to make sure to keep ourselves from idols, because again, if we don't, if we let other things take God's place in our hearts, then all these assurances, all these confidences don't do us anything. That God needs to be prominent and preeminent over top of all of those things, and we need to be praying and struggling against that to have God be at the top of our life instead of an idol. Um, so, you know, this is the whole letter, and now it's what it means to be a Christian. To wrap this all up, and almost going back to the beginning of this, because that's what John does, kind of wraps around in a circle, uh, there's a lot of people who think they're Christians and they're not. I think the statistic was like two-thirds of American adults say they're Christian. Wait, no, I don't remember. I'm not going to say it because I don't want to lie. But there, it's been said that there is uh, three groups of Christians regarding confidence and salvation. You have those who are secure but not sure, those who are sure but not secure, and those who are secure and sure. And what First John can help you do, reading through this and praying through it, is tell you where you are. Are you secure but not sure? And that's not the worst place to be. That's pretty good. Because that means you're secure in your salvation. You're just unsure. And we all go through those times where we question it, where we doubt things. Uh, we're unsure of our salvation. But again, reading through this, seeing the things John says Christians do through the Holy Spirit should give you some confidence and make you more sure in your salvation. There's also those who are sure but not secure. That's the worst one to be. That's the one who says, I know, I'm very sure I'm a Christian, but actually you're not. Uh, where it's just saying, oh, I gave my life to Jesus a while ago, so I'm set. And no, giving your life to Jesus is not a while ago. It's all the time and always growing with him. So we don't want to be sure but not secure because the point is security, not sure. But those who are secure and sure, that's hopefully the category we're moving towards or maybe already in as you're reading First John, seeing the things he said, that we should be secure in our salvations, have confidence, and be sure of it. Now, like I said at the beginning, there's uh, a lot of times we have struggles being confident in these things, thinking, how could God forgive me? The terrible things that I've done, how could God forgive that? And there could be a lot of reasons. I, I thought of two that kind of get to the bottom of all. So if that's something you're struggling about, it's probably one of these two things. Um, and they're not necessarily good things. So a lot of times feeling unsure or unconfident in our salvation could indicate a lack of trust in what Jesus has done. And this sounds like we're being really humble and holy about it and that sort of thing, but it's actually, it's pride disguised as humility. Because what we're saying is, Jesus' sins were enough to pay for the whole world's, but not mine. And mine is too bad for Jesus. Jesus couldn't pay for my sins. It sounds very humble, but it's not. That's pride. It's saying Jesus wasn't good enough to do that. Um, or a lot of times we think we need to punish ourselves. Like penance is the, the term for that. We need to you know, do things to ourselves to, you know, to make us pay for the sins because Jesus' payment wasn't enough. So we need to figure out other ways to punish ourselves. Uh, and again, it sounds like humility, but it's pride, and pride is sinful. Um, and a lot of times, again, when we struggle with that confidence, you know, you really, it's, what's really underneath that? Is it that, that you're not 
trusting that, that you don't think Jesus can pay for your sins, but he can pay for everyone else's. Yeah, Jesus can pay for everyone's sins. And you don't need to punish yourself because he took God's punishment. John says, I think twice, that Jesus is our propitiation. That's the thing that uh, takes God's wrath, absorbs God's wrath. God pour out all of his wrath and punishment on Jesus on the cross. And you do not need to punish yourself. You do not need to feel condemned. You can have confidence that Jesus was enough to do it. But it also might be a projected feeling of guilt. Um, like Maybe you don't feel confident about your forgiveness or your salvation because really you feel guilty about it. Like Maybe you're, you're really feeling like, um, I don't do enough, I don't deserve it, I'm not giving enough. And maybe it's a lack of commitment. And that could be a thing too. I mean, if, if you're not committing yourself to it, if you're not investing in it like we talked about, in your salvation, in your walk with Jesus then you might feel guilty because you're not doing enough. And maybe you need to serve more. Maybe you need to uh, love more, pray more abundantly, give more. If we're feeling guilty about what we're doing, that we're not doing enough, then maybe we project that onto Jesus and say, well, I'm unworthy, I'm not good enough. Because again, we're not, but if we trust in Him and His love for us, then it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Jesus. And so we, this is about confidence in Christ. And because Jesus did enough to pay for your salvation. He's the only one who could have done it. You and your little offerings you could give to God and mine, that does nothing. God says those are filthy rags. Uh, uh, what's the other word he says? It's not good. It means poop. But I don't remember the exact word he said. Uh, but that's the things we do for God outside of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean anything. Our the ways we condemn ourselves, the punishments we give ourselves, doesn't mean anything. We need to have confidence in Christ and that He did enough to secure our salvations. And it seems, it's hard to believe because it is. It's hard to believe that God would love sinful people enough to come to the earth Himself to live for us and suffer for us and be mocked for us and ridiculed for us. It's hard to believe that, but He did it. And that's the gospel. That's Christianity. It is, again, it is hard to believe, but that's what happened. That's our confidence. We, so this is all through Jesus. All our confidence is through Jesus. We would have no confidence before God if Jesus didn't do all the work for us. Jesus set us right with the Father. His sacrifice forgives us of all of our sins. He's restored us to fellowship with God the Father. If we truly trust in Jesus, if we truly place our faith in Jesus, if we truly believe the promises of Jesus, we truly pray according to the will of Jesus, if we truly live in holiness and keep ourselves from idols, we can have confidence before God through Jesus. And so let's pray. Hey, Father, thank you for sending your Son to, to this earth. As we remember in this you know, time of Christmas, that that's what you came to do, Jesus. You came to live a perfect life for us, to be a perfect sacrifice for us, to forgive us of our sins so that we could have confidence before you, God. When we do not deserve it at all, we are unworthy of it, Lord. But your Son is worthy, and He did it all for us. So God, I pray that you would just work in us to give us the confidence that we can have through your Son, Jesus. The confidence that we should have in our salvation, trusting in Jesus and the work He did. The confidence we can have in our prayer to know that you will hear us in everything we ask, and you will listen to us. And Lord... Uh, the confidence we can have in our holiness 
to sin less, to glorify you better. And Lord, I pray you keep us all from idols, from anything that take, might take your place in our hearts, Lord God. Um, I pray the Holy Spirit would convict us of those things, that we turn away from them, that we repent of them, and have full confidence in your work, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or give us a call at 800-357-4226. There's also a video of today's teaching available on our website, theriverchristianfellowship.com, and then click the media button. Don't forget to catch the evening service at 7 p.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship live on CSN.